This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Welcome to the new season and, of course, our second successive season in the Premier League. There's been so much activity during the summer um, that there's been too much to keep up with. Lots of players being rumoured and players coming in through the doors. Of course, we've got Justin Clivers, Milos Kerkes, plus um, we've got probably a couple more as well that will be joining in the coming weeks. Well... Of course, we kick off at home to West Ham United, a side that had a disappointing season under David Moyes in the Premier League, but a side who went and win won the Europa Conference League. So, we do have a very, very special guest on with us today. Now, this man is a political broadcaster for LBC. He's wrote a number of books. He's also been a radio presenter, one of the top bloggers in the UK, and he's done a lot, lot more as well. And he's also interviewing loads and loads and loads of politicians as well. It is a pleasure to welcome onto Up the Cherries in all departments, Ian Dale. Good afternoon, Ian. How are you doing? I'm doing all right, thank you. And thank you so much for coming on Up the Cherries in all departments. So a lot of people will recognise you from LBC, but let's start off where your affiliation with West Ham United began. Um, what was your earliest memories? Um, my earliest memory is of um, a, a friendly against Cambridge United, because I, I grew up uh, in Saffron Walden near Cambridge, <laughs> and... West Ham played at some sort of testimonial game. This would have been, well, I want to say it's 1972, but I don't think it can be because I didn't really start supporting them until 1974, 75. But they won 3-2. And my best friend at primary school, Roger Sizer, he supported West Ham and I supported Manchester United. I mean, being from Essex, obviously that's a natural thing to do. <laughs> And um, then they got relegated. And as a 10-year-old, the shame of supported a, supporting a relegated side was too much. So um, Roger said to me, well, you should support West Ham. So I did, which I don't regret, but it wasn't maybe the best decision of my life if I wanted to uh, support a team winning trophies all the time. Uh, fair enough. Um, so, of course, you saw many, many games at Upton Park. And 
of course, you you do do a lot of writing for West Ham Till I Die. Um, and I was having a look, and you mentioned a 5-4 win against Bradford City is the best game you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> has that been surpassed? Because it seems like a really strange game to actually pick as that. Well, it was just so dramatic. I mean, in a way, I mean, I could say the 2006 FA Cup final against Liverpool was the best because I, I remember coming out of the Millennium Stadium feeling as if we'd won, even though we hadn't, because we, we played so well. We should have won. It was a complete flute goal by Steven Gerrard at the end that uh, took it to penalties. And um, it was just one of those magnificent afternoons. And all the Liverpool fans afterwards, uh, they were just saying to me, oh, I feel gutted for you because that was your game. And we were 2-0 up after, I don't know, 20 minutes or something. Um, but as typical West Ham, just like my dreams, they fade and die. But that, that Bradford match, it just had everything. Um, I think we were, I can't remember the exact details, but I think we were 4-2 down or something, and we came back to win 5-4. And we had uh, a young Stephen Bywater in goal who had a terrible game. I think he, he was the regular goalkeeper was injured, Shaka Hislop, I think. Yeah. And then uh, Di Canio, I mean, the best player I have ever seen at Upton Park, he uh, basically sat... Harry Redknapp wanted to substitute him and he refused to go off. And then he then he sat down in the centre circle and wouldn't play on. And then there was a penalty which um, Frank Lampard wanted to take. And then Di Canio just wrested the ball from his hands and took it and, and just did one of those little dinky penalties, which I hate players yeah. doing. And it just had everything that game. And there was a point where you think, well, well there's no way that we're ever going to get anything out of this. But we did. Harry Redknapp is a bit of a regular on this channel, to be fair. But um, what was your honest thoughts of him and his time at Upton Park? Well, um, I have got one anecdote where I, in 1990, oh, what was it, five, I think. No, 1996, um, I got fired from a job and I had six months where I, I was developing a business plan for a new business. Mm -hmm. And so I was working from home and I lived probably about four miles from Chadwell Heath, the West Ham training ground. So I used to go and watch them train occasionally. And one day um, I was watching them train and Ian Dowie, who had a reputation for being a striker who could never score a goal for West Ham, um, he hit this 30-yard volley into the back of the net. Mm. And I just burst out laughing, thinking, well, if he can do that here, why can't he do it on the pitch? I remember Harry walking off the pitch, walking past me, he goes, I saw you laugh at that. And he, Harry Redknapp, even now, is still one of the most popular people that have ever played or met for or managed West Ham. Um, he's got just got this infectious character. I interviewed him oh, when his autobiography came out, which he was quite open about not having written a word of. And yeah. I had about an hour with him. And he's, he's just a brilliant, well, you will know this, he's just a yes. brilliant person to interview because he, he's very honest in interviews, um, doesn't try to avoid questions, and has always got anecdote after anecdote after anecdote. And um, 
when there was all the trouble with David Moyes last season where it was thought that they were going to get rid of him, there were a lot of people who thought, well, let's bring back Harry just temporarily to take us through to the end of the season. And I think that would have been a very popular thing to, to have done, even now, 25, 25 years on since he left. And he always speaks of the club highly as well. He loves the club. It's, it's part of him, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, it is a very different club from when he was managing it, it has to be said. The move to, to the London Stadium um, has changed everything, really. I think in many ways for the better. Um, but it, it's not the same West Ham that he either played for or managed. Well, of course, we did mention earlier on about LBC, um, but you're also an author, a radio presenter, one of the country's leading bloggers and also a panellist. Um, before we cover the current career, how did your journey begin? Well, most of my life, I've virtually every job I've had, um, I've it's been either in the media or involved in politics in some way. So I've really got the political bug, I suppose. I've never been able to eradicate it from my bloodstream. Um, well, I went to university in Norwich to study German, intending actually to be a German teacher, but life politics got in the way of that. And then I've had a succession of jobs in, um, I worked in Parliament for a time in the mid-1980s, was a lobbyist, mm -hmm. uh, ran a political consultancy, uh, opened a political bookshop in the mid-1990s, started a publishing company, a political magazine, chief of staff to David Davis when he was running to be Tory leader. And then in 2010, I got this job with LBC because I'd always wanted to either be an MP or be a radio presenter. And I'd kind of given up on the radio presenting because I did stuff for Five Live uh, on a programme called Sunday Service, which is a sort of satirical political programme. Um, but that didn't lead to anything else. And I'd, so I'd kind of given up on it. And then LBC came along and um, they offered me the e weekday evening show, much to my surprise. And I've been doing that ever since. It's the best job I've ever had. I absolutely love every moment of it because you, every day is different. You never know what's going to happen in the news. A breaking story, a terror attack, or I don't know, something, uh, a plane crash or whatever. I mean, quite macabre things, but that's, that's when the adrenaline starts flowing because you've got very little information to go on, but you're told well, you've got to go rolling on it. Yeah. And it's it, you get a real buzz out of those kind of days, and they can happen at any time. And that's when you that's when you find out whether you can really do the job. And you also do a, a panel show called Cross Question. Um, you debate all the political topics going on at the moment with a number of guests, and it's done on purpose, isn't it, Ian? That they've got conflicting views. How do you keep control of that conversation so well and also allow everybody to have their opinions? Well, uh, we started the show because I was slightly frustrated by shows like BBC's Question Time, where they do pitch people up against each other and they want a row. It's the same when I go on the Jeremy Vine show on Channel 5, where you've got somebody on the right, somebody on the left, let's all have a row. And that is not really where I come from. And I think you can have an entertaining discussion without every programme, people feeling they have to have a row. Yeah. So the whole premise of it is, yes, I'll probably I'll have two people from the broad left, two people from the broad right. But the inter and I'd say to them before we start, I don't want you to have a row. I want you to disagree, but in an agreeable manner. 
And I think that's where the British public are at the moment. I've had so many people get in touch to say, well, I watch your programme because you don't actually encourage rows. Now, occasionally, panellists will fall out. I mean, that's human nature. Yeah. David Starkey and Paul Mason I had on the same panel, and they they really had it went for each other. I mean, basically, Paul Mason called David Starkey a Nazi. <laughs> well, he wasn't going to take that line down. No. Um, so you sometimes have these moments but you can actually, and it, it all depends on what the listeners ask as well, because they're, they're the ones that put the questions. I don't put the questions. I will follow up with questions. Um, but I do try and keep a reasonably calm atmosphere, because if you've got, you've got four people talking over each other, and it is, produ- okay, it is visualised, people can watch it, but it, it is a radio show. So the, the mo- most of the audience will be listening rather than watching, and you always have to bear that in mind. I mean, th- this whole trend towards visualising radio, yeah. I get why we have to do it. And my studio that I broadcast from is essentially a TV studio. We even got autocue. I mean, autocue on radio, really? Um, <laughs> um, but but I, I know why it has to happen, but there's part of me that quite like to go back to the old days where we just sat in front of a microphone, we could wear T-shirts and give a finger to the producer. Whereas now, if I, if there's a caller that comes on who's absolutely mad and I sort of want to give a wanker sign to the producer, I can't do that anymore because <laughs> it's all on camera. You've been on the other side of it as well, haven't you, where you've been a part of the panel um, and like you mentioned, the Jeremy Vartin show and, of course, Good Morning Britain. What is it like to be on that other side, seeing as you're mainly in charge and presenting? Well, sometimes you kind of think the presenter is going in the wrong direction and you kind of want to bring it back. But you have to remember, you are not the presenter. Yeah. And um, I mean, different show. Every show is different. Good Morning Britain it's fantastic because you're on for about half an hour and I do it with my friend Jackie Smith, the former Labour Home Secretary. Uh, we do a podcast together as well called For The Many and we are great friends and it's a bit like what we were talking about earlier. We disagree on a lot of things but in 400 episodes of the podcast we've never had a single row, we've never fallen out and that's how it should be and, it's, and we bring that sort of vibe to Good Morning Britain. Uh, question time on the other hand, I've only done that twice and the first time, it was actually a good experience because it was a good panel and the audience wasn't one of those bear-baiting audiences. Whereas the second time, it was during all the Brexit, I think Parliament had just been prorogued by Boris Johnson and everyone was really angry. And there were six people on the panel. And I only got, in 60 minutes, I only managed to get three and a half minutes of airtime. Whereas Emily Thornbury, the Labour MP who was on, got 13 minutes. And I wouldn't that wouldn't normally bother me, but on that programme, it really did. And I didn't enjoy that at all. And I then wrote an article in the Daily Telegraph about how awful it had been. And bizarrely, I've never been invited back. (laughs) You do stand up for yourself when, say, for example, your opinions aren't being listened to, though. And there was quite a famous clip that I saw um, when it was live at the time. Um, And that was on Good Morning Britain. What went through your mind and what thought, right, Okay, I need to make a stand and walk off here? Well, that was a uh, time when Jackie was away. Yeah. So they told me that Grace Blakely would be my combatant, if you like. Yeah. Now, Grace is a, a young left-wing, quite a radical uh, commentator. And 
I actually recommended her to Good, Good Morning Britain. I really like her. So it wasn't a case of sort of not liking her at all, which I think some people thought at the time. And then at the last minute, they brought in Nihal, the Five Live presenter, mm -hmm. because apparently the section that he was going to be on, they'd axed. So they thought, well, we've got to have him on somewhere. So they put him in there. So it's basically two people on the left versus me on the vague right, which is often the case when I do news nights, usually two against one. Yeah. And I, look, I can take it. But there, there was, it was a very delicate subject we were talking about. It was about um, somebody who had jumped off a balcony in the Tate Gallery in London. And um, I can't remember the exact details, but it was one of those things where um, I think he had real mental health issues. Yeah. And Grace started off by effectively blaming the government, which I thought was a bit weird. She was saying, well, because of lack of mental health funding, he didn't get any funding, so therefore he jumped off the balcony. And I thought, well, that's stretching it a little bit. So I start, they then came to me for me to give my response. And I got about four words out before she interrupted. Mm -hmm. And then I got about another 10 words out before she interrupted a second time. And I was sort of looking at the presenters, Ben and Kate, think, well, are you going to intervene, intervene here? And it, then when she did it a third time before I could, I could, I couldn't even have made any point that the listeners would have understood because I wasn't yeah. allowed to get the words out. And then Nihal started from, so it's like a pincer movement from both. I was in the, sitting in the middle. It was like a pincer movement. And in all honesty, I think I was probably in a pretty bad mood anyway that morning because I didn't, I didn't want, I don't like doing panels of three on that program. They know that. And I didn't really want to discuss this issue because I didn't feel I knew enough about it. So I, I think looking back, and I don't think I'm sort of post-rationalizing it, I think I was in a pretty bad mood. And when the presenters didn't sort of intervene to say, just let him have his say, because I mean, you've got to think, the image of a, of a sort of older man telling a, a young female to shut up, which I probably would have done if it had just been Nihal. Yeah. I mean, it's not a good look, is it? So you have to be really careful about that. In the end, I, ju I just snapped. I had enough. So I, I just walked off quite calmly. I didn't flounce, as uh, the, all the newspapers said. I walked calmly off. I walked straight out of the building. And I was about to get in the cab, and the, the editor rushes down. So I'm really sorry, really sorry. I said, well, look, I completely understand. If you don't want me back on the program after that, I get it. No, 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 not at all. And um, look, looking back, I shouldn't have done it. Uh, I can rationalise all I like about why I did it, but I shouldn't have done it. No, fair enough. Unfortunately, being part of a political broadcaster, you are unfairly subject to attacks from Twitter. And there was a point when Piers Morgan threw his support behind you. How do you cope with that negative side of the job? Trying to remember when Piers supported me, but... Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> look... You, you do have to develop the skin of a rhinoceros, but it, people in the media, politicians, we're all human beings. We all have our breaking points. And, um, I mean, I can be quite feisty on Twitter. Uh, I, I try, I've tried to tone it down a bit over the last few years. I wrote a book called Why Can't We All Just Get Along? Shout, Let's Listen More. And I basically said that I'm part of the problem. If somebody calls me um, a, a twat on Twitter... I'm likely to, because the natural human reaction is to say, well, you've called me a twat, I'm going to call you an effing twat. And it, therefore, it ramps up 
nowadays I try and sort of tone it down a bit. And often you can actually turn it around. I remember um, once on Twitter doing my show, somebody uh, tweeted, Ian Dale is so far up Boris Johnson's ass, you can't see his shoes. I thought, well, that's just simply not true. I, 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 I criticised Boris Johnson a huge amount. But if he did something I agreed with, I would say so. But people always remember the times that you agree with their opponents, but they never remember the times that you criticise them. So I just replied to this guy saying, this is not true. Here are nine occasions over the last two weeks where I've criticised Boris Johnson. And he then sent me a direct message the next day to say, I'm really sorry, I shouldn't have said that. I can see it's not true. And we then developed this sort of, we, we kept sort of talking on Twitter, then we went on to WhatsApp, and he's now become actually quite a good friend of mine. Mm. So out, out of sort of disaster, you sort of, you can actually sometimes turn it round. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, how much preparation, Ian, goes into interviewing and questioning some of the politicians that you've spoken to is it a case where you have to write out all the questions or are you just quite spontaneous it's a terrible thing to admit but i very rarely do any preparation and that's not because i'm a lazy person most people who know me know that i'm a complete workaholic mm -hmm. but i don't want to do aggressive political interviews there are lots of other people who can do those yeah. i like to do conversational interviews now, yes. you can't really do that if you're interviewing someone for four minutes, which is oft, often the case. But I try to do much longer interviews. And that's what I mean. I'm sitting here in a hotel room in Edinburgh because I'm doing a show called Ian Dale All Talk at the Edinburgh Fringe. And that is 70 minutes of just me and one or possibly two other people on the stage chewing the fat. Now, my... I mean, the reason I was late for this, as, as I told you, I was, I was taking a phone call from Nicola Sturgeon, which you might think is a bit bizarre, but um, she's my guest on Thursday. And obviously, given the, the situation she's in at the moment with a police inquiry, mm -hmm. there are things that I can't ask her because she will have to say, I can't answer that. Now, I don't want to do an interview that it spends half an hour of me sort of saying, well, what about what what about this? Did you do that? She said, well, I can't answer that. It's part of the police investigation. So this is, I can't remember any other time I've ever spoken to either the person I'm interviewing or one of their press officers yeah. where we sort of slightly, I wouldn't say rehearse anything. We, we didn't rehearse it, but there has to be an understanding on this that I can't go into certain places. And I will explain that to the audience when we're there. Because the, the natural suspicion is that politicians and interviewers are kind of all in it together and, and they stitch it up beforehand. And I can honestly say to you that I have never had a politician or their press officer tell me I can't ask a question or had them say, will you ask this question? No, it, it does not happen. Well, it certainly never happened to me. The only time, or the only person that, who's ever done that with me is the Archbishop of Canterbury, believe it or not. Um, and it, it's too long to explain, but no politician has ever done it. And they know that I have a job to do. I know they have a job to do. And somewhere you, you sort of hope that you're going to come up with some interesting things. And if you're interviewing a politician for 70 minutes, inevitably, they're, they're not going to be be able to have 70 minutes of sound bites. 
Whereas if you if you're listening to I don't know the Today program or Five Live Breakfast or Nick Ferrari in the morning on LBC, yeah. inevitably a breakfast show is a fast paced show. So you haven't got twenty minute interviews. You've got maybe six seven minutes at the most. So what often happens there is that you've got an editor in your ear, sort of saying you need to get a news line from this. So you start off with quite an aggressive question. But if you do that, the politician then puts the shutters up because, as I say, they are human beings. If you attack them, they're not going to react well to it. So they put the shutters up and then it becomes completely sterile. Who loses out? The listener. And I, I hate doing those sort of interviews. I mean, it's as if, I mean, if, if, if I said to you, if I was interviewing you now and you said yeah. something and I effectively asked you a question, the implication of which was that you were lying to me, Mm-hmm. You wouldn't react well to that. You would think, well, right. sod this for a game of soldiers. Who does he think he is? And, and you would shut up, basically. You would, you would just come out, you would just mouth platitudes for the rest of the interview. Um, and too many interviewers do that, particularly young interviewers who are trying to make a name for themselves. And they think it's all about them. And it isn't about them. It's actually about the person that they're interviewing. Yeah, completely agree. And I guess if that hard question is asked too early, it's all about damage limitations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So if you know you've only got seven minutes, um, I, mean, I can remember interviewing Theresa May once when she was Prime Minister, mm-hmm. and I had a half an hour, which is a long time for a Prime Minister, and at minute 27, my producer said in my ear, you haven't got anything out of this yet. And I just thought, you just wait. And by that time, and Theresa May is a very tricky politician to interview because her natural instinct is to try and say nothing. Um, so you have to sort of, it's a horrible expression, but you have to kind of tickle them up a bit. And, yeah. and, and that's what I did with her. And then a minute 28, I can't remember what it was now, but I got a really good newsline out of her. Uh, she said something that she hadn't really intended to say, I think. Um, so you just have to have confidence that, you're going to get something because I mean, look, there are some interviews where you don't get anything, but it it, it's, it shouldn't always be about getting the news line or the, the, the 30 second clip that can go viral. Yeah, most definitely. You've written a number of books as well, such as the president's 250 years of American political leadership. And also the prime ministers, not uh, 1721 to 2020. You've also got an up and coming book, kings and queens can you tell us a little bit more about those well i've developed this genre where i publish books that i haven't written myself and get i get other people to write them um, which people have spotted now um i i'm a political geek but i realized that i didn't know much about a lot of our prime ministers some of them from the 18th century i'd never heard of so i thought well i can't write a book about them all um, but i know people who can So what I do with these books is put together a cast list of a mixture of politicians, journalists, academics, historians, and they each pick a prime minister or a president or a king and queen to write about. So in the prime minister's book, there's 55 essays, all between 1,500 words and 5,000. And frankly, I mean, if if you're vaguely interested in current affairs and politics, you're probably not still going to want to read a whole biography of Gladstone, maybe. Um, but the, the joy of these books is you can dip into them and just choose one essay. And they're kind of extended loo books in, in, a, in a way. Um, and if, you, if, if the person seems really interesting, then you can go away and buy a whole book about them. 
And I, it's made me realize how little I personally know about these people. And the Kings and Queens book, I decided to go back to King Alfred in 886 rather than just William the Conqueror in 1066, because I knew nothing about all the Anglo-Saxon kings. I'd never heard of most of them. But there are lots of experts out there who do know about them. Uh, and similarly, I mean, some of the lesser known, re more recent monarchs. So what I love doing is matching the right person with the right monarch or the right president or the right prime minister. And it's like putting together a jig jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. And then once you've done that and they send all of the essays in, there's always a couple that deliver late. There's often one that just doesn't do it at all. So you have to find a last minute replacement. It's like herding cats. <laughs> but the final product makes it all worthwhile. And I mean, people say that no one's interested in, in politics nowadays, but the prime ministers sold 50,000 copies, which make, makes it a bestseller, which you would never think a book like that would. I always find it interesting because there's been times of an evening where there's not much on. And, you know, I'm sat there with my phone and I'm looking up and I'm going back through prime ministers or kings and queens and looking at those people and, you know, trying to relate, okay, what happened then relates to something in the in politics or a law nowadays. And is that where it all stems from, do you feel? Yes. And I mean, there are parallels that you can draw between all sorts of different eras and all politics, all economics are cyclical, I think. When I was a teenager in the mid-1970s, we had very high inflation. Uh, there were lots of strikes. I thought that inflation had been almost permanently eradicated from our economy. Well, look where we are now. I thought all the Thatcher anti-strike legislation had effectively emasculated trade unions and meant that strikes wouldn't really ever happen again. Here we are now. Mm -hmm. uh, the Labour Party had a very left-wing leader, after the 79 election or 1980, Michael Foote. Um, again, I thought that Tony Blair had eradicated all that from the Labour Party. Then Jeremy Corbyn gets elected leader of the Labour Party. Um, so, as I say, it's all cyclical. And it's all, I mean, I, you could never have predicted that Jeremy Corbyn could ever have led the Labour Party. It'd be one of those things that you put in a book of political counterfactuals and think, yeah, people, I mean, most people would just laugh at it. But it happened. And that's where I think people find politics so fascinating that it throws up these characters who do unexpected things. And I mean, that's what I've been re-watching The West Wing nowadays, which a lot of your listeners may not have heard of because it, it, came, it started in 1998, went through to about 2006. And it was all about an American president, um, President Butler, played by Martin Sheen. And at the yeah. time, everyone raved about this series. And I, I loved it. So I started watching it again. I, I broke my hip a few weeks ago, so I was off work for six weeks. So I started watching it again, thinking it would have dated and that it wouldn't be relevant to today's politics. But it so is. Virtually every scenario that there is in this series, it, it has replayed over the last few years as well. I mean, obviously, I mean, the computer screens are a bit different to the ones that we use nowadays. Yeah. But the themes and the characters, you can find them all in modern day politics, even 25 years later. It's fascinating, isn't it, really? When you look back, when you look back. And, of course, it, Kings and Queens, the book that is coming out very, very shortly, um, I guess it's quite a poignant time to actually release that book as well, isn't it? Yeah, because it, it's being released a week and a day after the Queen died. Yeah. And um, 
which presented me with a bit of a problem because we obviously at the time I commissioned all the essays and then I thought, well, should I include King Charles in the book? So I have done. Um, and in a way, I'm glad we did because it's, it rounds things off and sort of the last chapter is written by my LBC colleague, Sheila Fogarty. And it- hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Picture the scene. All of your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Looks at all the challenges facing the monarchy nowadays. Some of the same challenges that faced the monarchy 100, 200, 300, 500 years ago. And it, 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 it is a poignant moment in, in some ways. Um, and, and that, I mean, I remember that day that, that we'd sort of got wind that the Queen might either have died or be about to die and it's a it's a sort of quite a macabre thing in a newsroom because you have to prepare and we'd, we'd there'd been quite a few occasions in the previous three or four years where rumors started to circulate that uh, the duke of edinburgh had died and then it all turned out to be fake but you've got to be ready to go on air mm-hmm. and talk about it and obviously you, you prepare obituaries in advance so we had a sort of i don't know a five minute version a 15 minute version uh, ready to go but as a presenter if you're on air when something like this uh, is announced again that's when you earn your money and it was announced at 6 30 half an hour before I was due to go on air and I was really quite grateful that it that I wasn't even though there was a the devil in me and the professional in me would have quite liked to have been on air I was really anxious that I would have cried which I know sounds pathetic but I cry at Emmerdale. I cry at adverts sometimes. I'm just, I'm just one of those people who tears up very, very easily. And I, I have done it on the programme before. And I've, I've stopped being embarrassed about it. But that is a national moment. And your job as a professional broadcaster in that moment is not to emote. Your job is to announce the news and then interpret it if, if, if you need to. Um, having said that, if you remember... Um, Hugh Edwards did have a little moment when he announced it and Andrew Marr on LBC his voice completely cracked and he was devastated that that had happened but actually it was a really good thing because I think he was worried that people would sort of laugh at him but quite the reverse the way it happened I think he was he was kind of reflecting the mood of a lot of the nation and not everybody by any stretch of the imagination um, but that that is a really big moment. And I then, they actually kept Andrew on, and Sheila Fogarty does a lot of royal stuff for us. She uh, was on with him. And then I my show was delayed by by three hours, which I wasn't, if I'm honest, very pleased about. But um, I then started taking calls from listeners. And I wondered if anyone would phone in, because often in these circumstances, they don't. 
but the lines were full and the calls that we had were just so brilliant even from people who weren't really in favor of the monarchy they knew it was a moment not for grandstanding but a moment to just sort of pay their respects and, and that's a great thing about lbc it allows people in the aftermath of a big event to have their say yeah definitely definitely well what i'll do is i'll come on to the gaming question so of course at last <laughs> at last <laughs> we we've got it um so of course um west ham um had a bit of a difficult season in the premier league last season but yeah, no thanks to you lot <laughs> but won some silverware um do you feel that David Moyes, you know, considering, you know, what he's done for the club, you know, deserves some of the flack that he has got from the West Ham faithful? This is a really difficult one. Um, I was not in favour of David Moyes being appointed manager the first time. I certainly wasn't in favour of him being appointed the second time. Mm-hmm. Um People say, yeah, but he saved you from relegation. Well, we did stay up, so you can interpret it that way. It was the players that saved us from relegation. And you can say, well, it was his tactics up to a point. I mean, there there were some pretty shocking performances during that period in his first tenure. And then we had the Pellegrini period, um, which didn't work out. Um, A lot of money was spent on players that, they should never have bought. And anyway, then then obviously Moyes came back. I thought it was a retrograde step. I don't believe that it's it rarely works out for a manager to come back a second time. Um, but and this was sort of the beginning of COVID. So the first and so during his first two seasons, I mean, we we played some fantastic football, very un-David Moyes-like football in, in many yeah. ways. And um, we did brilliantly in the Premier League, and it was a pleasure to watch. Now, people automatically say, oh, it must be because the London Stadium was empty because of COVID. I don't think it was that at all. Um, it's just that somehow the players clicked. And then last season, it all fell apart. And I think it was in part because, again, they brought in, a, they spent £180 million in the summer transfer window last season. And some of the players took a long time to really find their feet, and some just never did. You took look at Luis Paqueta, who everyone now thinks of this brilliant, uh, tricky Brazilian midfielder, and he is. But he only really started playing in March. Yeah. You look at Gianluca Scamacca, who, when he first played for us, I think he scored two goals in his first game. And you could see that he knew where the goal was, and he could really strike a ball. But somehow he never really got going. He, he had a, a few injuries which held him back. And he could never really break into the team and become the automatic first-choice striker. And I, I'm sad that he's gone because I think he could have made it, but he clearly wants to go back to Italy. So and if you have a player who doesn't want to play for you, just you, there's no point in trying to hang on to them. Um, uh, several of the others actually did work out. Um but I don't know what it was last season. You had Antonio off the boil. You had Jared Bowen not not playing how he did until again February or March. It was February or March that they it all started to come together again. And we, we finished in, I think, 14th place. Mm-hmm. 
um, which earlier in the season we we would have settled for, I have to say, because it looked at one point as if we really would be in the in a relegation battle. Um, so, and of course now, then then we won the Conference League, which was an amazing experience for all of us. And you can't sack a manager after winning a trophy like that. You just can't. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't have advocated that. But there is clearly something wrong in the West Ham dressing room. There are too many players that don't like David Moyes, that don't want to play for David Moyes. And so you've got the likes of Aaron Cresswell, who, I mean, he's 33, so you might think, well, he's going to be going anyway soon. He wants out. Antonio apparently wants out. Thomas Suchak, there's also rumours about him. Um and it, it doesn't seem to be a very happy place. Now, we have to bring players in. We're, we're very weak in midfield, particularly since Declan Rice has been sold. And it's like a dagger to my heart every time I see him in an Arsenal shirt. It's just awful. I'm sure you've got Bournemouth players that you just sort of feel the same about. But, oh, um, so, so we've got to regroup get some new players in. We haven't signed anyone so far, though it's, I think today they, they, they are going to announce that Edson Alvarez from Ajax is coming, somebody who they've been chasing throughout the transfer window. Um, he's a Mexican international, he's played 80 times for Mexico. Chelsea wanted him last season. Um, he, I, I've never seen him, but apparently he is a real top player. Um, but they're, they're trying to get Harry Maguire, Scott McTominay, James Ward-Prowse. I mean, I think if they get... The, the latter two, uh, I mean, we're going to have probably too many midfields. The one I wanted was Conor Gallagher, who I think is a, a brilliant, brilliant player, but I think he's going to probably stay at Chelsea. But uh, it would have been fantastic. I think he would really fit in well at West Ham. Um, but we need, we also need a striker or two. And I, I see there are now rumours that we're going after one of yours, Solanke. Yes, there is rumours. And I was just going to come on to that as well. Um, Solanke isn't an out-and-out goal scorer. He does drop back in and he's a good... He, he, he's good with passing the ball around and bringing other players in and getting them to score as well. Um, he's not that 30-goal-a-season striker. No. Is that really what West Ham are looking for, that sort of player? Well, it's not what the fans are looking for, but but it's probably what David Moyes is looking for. And if he wants to continue playing the same way and have a sort of Antonio-style player up front, I mean, I, I'm not sure that you can make a direct comparison, but Antonio is good at the things that you just said. But we want a goal scorer, and we haven't had one for a long time. And it's fine when all of the midfielders and wingers are chipping in with goals, but if that doesn't happen, where are they going to come from? And Solanke is always a player that I've I've thought of as somebody who's really good in the Championship, less good in the Premier League. Although, I mean, to be fair, last season I think he did he did do well. Yeah. But I mean, if we're looking to challenge for European places in the future, I would have thought we need to set our sights. And this is no disrespect to mm -hmm. Solanke, but I think we need to set our sights a little bit higher than that. And, and I mean, Moyes doesn't like playing two strikers. Very rarely ever does it. Um, we've got Danny Ings. Um, we, we've got, well, we've got Antonio for the moment. I don't know what, whether he's going to say. I suspect he will. Um, and we've got this really tricky uh, new striker who's come up through the youth team, uh, Devin Mabama, who's similar in stature to Antonio and is a real handful. He's one of these players like Antonio that 
you never know what they're going to do next and they don't know what they're going to do next until they actually do it so it's a real surprise to the opposition because they don't know how to control them so the, he scored um quite a few goals in pre-season and the hope is i think among fans that he will get be able to break through this season into the first team um, but danny ings i mean he was brought in in january only scored uh two goals in the league i mean, against nottingham forest and one in europe and never really looked comfortable because he's not a david moyes style of player he's he's a he's a six yard box type of player and you, you have to service him and that's been our problem over the years that we brought in strikers who on the face of it look brilliant they've got fantastic goal scoring records elsewhere and then they come to west ham and they flop Simon Zaza from Juventus, Sebastian Haller from Frankfurt, who's the moment he leaves us, having barely scored a goal for us, he then scores dozens of goals for Ajax. And okay, you can yeah. say, well, it's the Dutch league, but even so, um, I mean, very sadly, he then got testicular cancer, but I think he, he has come back now. And I mean, if you go down the decades, there are so many players like that. And we, we just don't seem to understand that if you buy a striker, you have to formulate your tactics to service them properly because if you don't they're not going to score the goals considering Declan Rice was sold fairly early in the window um, and all this money had come into West Ham there's got to be frustration within the West Ham fan base that the activity to actually replace him firstly but also improve the team for next season hasn't been done earlier well, we've all known that Declan Rice would go this summer. Yeah. There's a few of us sort of clung to a hope that he might not. But if we knew, the manager knew, the chairman knew, wouldn't you have thought that they would have lined up somebody in advance that they thought, well, this is our top target and we're going to move heaven and earth to get them? Yeah. And it, they, they've taken a, an approach in this transfer window, whether they're, they're, they're flailing around with all sorts of bids for Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. And... They keep going in with very low ball bids, which sends a signal. I mean, like Harry Maguire, who, I mean, I don't believe we should be paying 40 or 50 million for Harry no. Maguire. He's 30 years old. There will be no resale value. But to go in with 20 million for an England international, okay, he's not playing regularly for Manchester United, uh, it's quite insulting to the player. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the club may be less so. James Ward Prowse is another one that um, I think would fit in really well at West Ham. But You've got to show some commitment and to go in with, a, I think they first bid 20 million plus 5 million of add-ons when we, we all knew that Southampton were asking 40 million. You're never, they're never going to agree to that. Now, what might happen there is that we'll get to the end of the transfer window and Southampton think, well, we need the money. So we will, we will accept a, a bit of a low ball bid because nobody else seems to be going in for him. Uh, so, I mean, it's all a bit of a gamble, but they, they, they haven't rolled the dice in the right way so far. And it's, it's a travesty that for the first match of the season against you, we will not have a single new player in the team. The other thing as well, you know, is Alex Scott has been mentioned and linked yeah. to West Ham, being linked to Wolves and, of course, ourselves. We look like we are in pole position. But considering that money that's come in and the size of the other two clubs and, you know, a Bournemouth fan, you know, I appreciate we're not, anywhere near as big as West Ham at this point in time. Surely it's frustrating for the West Ham fans to be thinking, right, okay, we're losing out to teams like Bournemouth. And, you know, there's been times throughout the years where that's happened, isn't there? Yes. 
I mean, Alex Scott is an interesting one. Um, I've, I've never seen him play, but everyone says he's, he's absolutely brilliant and a real prospect. And we do have a record. And David Moyes, to be fair, does have yeah. a record of bringing people in from the championship. Uh, and I mean, Jared Bowen, for example. I, I can remember my producer at LBC is a Hull City fan. And I remember him talking to me about Jared Bowen several years ago, at least a year before he came to us, and saying, this guy is, is amazing. He could play in the Premier League. And I remember say, sending David Sullivan an email saying, you might want to look at this guy. Now, I have no idea whether that actually had any, any impact. But, I mean, Jared Bowen has been a revelation for us. Yeah. And there are players. I would much rather have play, proven players from the championship uh, come to us than some unknown from a minor European league because they know English football. And I think that's what there's been a conflict between David Moyes and this new director of uh, football, Tim Stiton, who wants to bring in players from Europe and Moyes wants to have proven Premier League players. So there, there's a bit of a conflict going on there, which is not really healthy. Um, well, you, or you could say it's healthy that sort of they thrash it out and then come to a conclusion. Um, but I would love us to sign someone like Alex Scott. There's no guarantee that he would necessarily do the business. I mean, £25 million for a 90, is he 19, I think? Yeah, 19. I, that's quite quite a lot of money. Yeah. And the fact that he hasn't been sold yet indicates that I think all three clubs are thinking, well, um, sort of, can we really go much higher than that? But um, he, I, I think he is someone still on our agenda, but nothing seems to be happening. Well, it's always a gamble with a player like that, isn't it? But at the same time, it appears that we are in pole position at this moment in time. So, Can I ask you a question? Go for it. Why, why on earth did they get rid of Gary O'Neill? This, do you know what? I, mean, I, would I, never, am... I, I would never have avoided him in the first place because I was totally unprecedented. Yeah. But I mean, the fact is, he, he, he did what he was asked to do. I was a big, big Gary O'Neill fan. And I thought, you know, he... OK, there was that little bit of a dip off mid-season around January. We had a lot of injuries at that time. But at the start of the season, after Scott Parker came out with what he did, you know, he pulled the team together. He got a nil-nil draw against Wolves at home. That might not sound like a great result, but it was a result to build upon. It was a clean sheet. And that's what he did. Um, between the Liverpool game and the Southampton game, every other team in the Premier League had been beaten apart from Bournemouth. So I'm a big fan of Gary O'Neill's and I think he would have gone the next step. Now, when he was sacked, I was completely dumbfounded at first. Me I even too. released a video on here saying, I don't know what they're doing. Really disappointed about it. The rumours were at that time that we was going to look at Frank Lampard. Now, I know Frank Lampard is a West Ham legend, but he struggled so far in management. Maybe needs a little bit of time at Championship Club to build himself back up. Um, Jesse Marsh, who of course was at Leeds, you know, failed spectacularly. There was even rumours of Steven Gerrard before he went over to Saudi Arabia. And, you know, I was completely against that. I would have rather stayed with Gary than those. Now, I understand now why the decision was made because Andoni Iriola is one of the hottest prospects in football. He's a bass coach. Um, of course, Lopetegui, Arteta, Unai Emre are all of that same ilk. And 
I think, you know, the football that he played at Rayo Vallecano, which if you think about it, Ian, it's a team that is quite similar to... Effectively, if you imagine getting Luton into the Champions League places, okay, they didn't finish there. They dipped back down. But keeping Luton in the Premier League for two seasons straight, um, everybody would be after Rob Edwards there. So I think, you know, working on a shoestring budget, which, of course, he's got lots more money now here at Bournemouth to spend, I think it's quite exciting. Do I think Gary's going to have a... I think Gary will have a fantastic career. Um, He's been linked with Wolves, hasn't he? He has, yeah. He has. And I honestly think he would do a good job there. I think he would keep them safe. Um, You know, my my friend Matt, uh, who also runs the channel with me, he turned around and he said he thinks Wolves will go down. Um, I've swayed the other way. I've gone Sheffield United as bottom. Everton as second bottom. Um, and then Luton putting up a valiant fight, but just missing out. Um, yeah. I think Gary O'Neill would be a good appointment for Wolves, but I don't think Lopetegui's done a bad job there. Um, I think it's a case of if, if Lopetegui walks, um, Gary O'Neill would do a good job for Wolves. Yeah, no, I agree. But yeah, I, if it was anybody else apart from Iriola. I would have said no, but I can understand what they're trying to do here. And I know this sounds awful, but I think Iriola was on their radar well before Gary O'Neill was sacked. Yeah, I think if you look at it objectively, he probably must have been. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Ian, I do this with all my guests as well. Um, we do have a little bit of a prediction as well. We're going to do a little bit of a prediction league, see who gets it right. Um, so three points for a spot-on result, one point for a correct result in the right way, but not the right score, and then zero, of course, for um, completely the wrong result. How do you think it's going to go this, this weekend? Well, Bournemouth, in some ways... I think have taken over as our bogey team. It used to be Everton. Um, now we, I think the season before last, we beat you three nil at your place, but I am not optimistic. I think we're going to have a difficult start to the season. The last two friendlies against Leverkusen and Ren, we've lost three, one and four nil. Um, I'm, I just feel that, if, if there is a third of the dressing room that is against the manager and is not going to put in 100%, um, I, I just feel that we're going to have a difficult start. We've got Chelsea after you as well at home. Um, so I think you're going to win 2-0. I've got to be honest, Ian. I've, I think we'll win, um, mainly because we've got that new manager. I think we'll get the new manager bounce. Um I'm probably going to go 2-1, so a little bit more conservative, but I think 2-1 and a decent showing by the team. And the thing is, is of course, there's that Declan Rice hole to fill still at West Ham. You know, the Moyes might bring in players now, but are they going to be ready for this weekend? They've got three days to do it. 
and get well, to know their new teammates. He he has a tendency if he brings in new players, they don't get on the pitch for two or three games. They come on as yeah. a sub for ten minutes, and it's very rare that he puts somebody straight in. So even if Alvarez signs today, which I don't think he's even had his medical yet, I would doubt whether he would actually start. Um, but you never know. I, I don't think Maguire and McTominay would be signed in time. Um, I was actually quite. I think he's going to play three at the back this season, which he did sometimes last season, but not all the time. And we do have actually, I think, already quite a good defence. I mean, what saved us last year was the defensive record in in, in some ways. Um, so I think in central defence we're we're quite strong, but uh, sort of left back and right back to an extent. I think they they they're, they're looking to strengthen as well. So I mean, by the end of the transfer window, if we haven't signed six or seven players, we are going to be left a bit short. But then there's a huge opportunity then for some of the youth team players to. Uh, we, we won the FA Youth Cup last season and I think came quite, quite high up in the youth leagues. And there's there's five or six youth team players who I know they have real high hopes for. So um, some of those will go out on loan this, this season. Freddie Potts has gone to Stevenage, I think, um, already. But there's three or four others that could be knocking on the door. They, they play some of the pre-season friendlies. They, got, they played in quite a few of the European games last season and did really really well yeah definitely well all the very very best to West Ham for the rest of the season after this weekend of course um I'm sure you know it'll be a successful season of course the Europa League as well this year yeah so yes yeah, something which of course to... I, I can't go to any of those games because um my radio show is in the evening so and they don't like you taking one day off they don't mind if you take a week off they don't like you to take the odd day off so um I, the, I i went to when we were in the europa league two years ago i did go to genk that was the only away game i went to but i didn't see a single home game at all so it's i'm, I'm delighted we're in europe but i can't experience it <laughs> Final final bit to finish on. Um, of course, like you mentioned, you're at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Um, of course, Sir Vince Cable and Nicola Sturgeon are going to come up as your guests over the next few days. Um, how is it going so far and what does the future hold for Ian Dale? Well, so far I've had Jeremy Corbyn and Lemma McCluskey, Mick Lynch from the RMT, uh, Penny Morden, she sold more tickets than anybody else, uh, West Streeting, Harriet Harman, and they've all been great. I mean, I suppose I would say that, wouldn't I? But I mean, I know when I haven't done a good interview and I know when an event hasn't really worked. And so far they've all worked. When you're doing 18 shows, inevitably there are going to be some that are going to work better than others but I, I love doing I love doing things in front of a live audience and okay you can say well I do that on the radio but you can actually see the people they they, they can react to you um, and it's just if you've never been to the Edinburgh Fringe it is a unique experience and I think anybody that goes to it always wants to then go back the next year it, it, it's predominantly comedy um, th these sort of speech things are a comparatively new thing for the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, in terms of what happens to me next, well, I'm 61 years old. Yeah, I know I don't look it. Um, I'm not thinking of retiring because I, I just, I'm a workaholic. I don't think I could ever retire in the traditional sense of the word. I'm sure... Um, when my LBC career comes to an end, which I mean, inevitably all radio presenters know that at some point either you decide to give up or, or they decide for you, 
um i still love doing it so, as i said it's the best job i've ever had and um i'm hopefully about to be signing a, a new quite lengthy contract so i i really want to be there for when the election happens because obviously that that's that's my christmas in some ways yeah. um and i just i i love presenting the overnight show um i mean i can't guarantee they're going to let me this time but uh it, it's it's just eight hours straight broadcasting i mean it's it's great um i think i'm going to do a lot more on the books front i've got uh three books coming out next year um and then after the kings and queens i'm doing the dictators then the generals so that series is going to continue. I'm doing a short biography of Margaret Thatcher for someone else. Um, so I've got plenty to keep me busy. But that I said to someone a few months ago that I think I've lost the art of doing nothing. So if I'm watching a match on a Sunday, a Sunday afternoon on Sky, I'll be tapping away on my computer, editing the Kings and Queens or something like that. Um, but when I was off with my broken hip for six weeks, I, I rediscovered a love of cricket which I used to really love, but it's slightly fallen out of love with. Um, so I watched a lot of cricket, started watching a bit more TV, which again, I don't really watch an awful lot of TV at the moment. Um, so I kind of want to have a bit more of a life in a way. And because most weekends I'm away doing something at a literary festival or speaking at some sort of political event. And I, I've just sort of, tr I've got to try and say no more often. I do say no, but my partner always says, why, why can't you ever learn to say no? And I do, I say, yeah, but you only see the thing. You don't see all the things I do say no to. You just see the things that I, I say yes to. And then he goes through my diary and says, yeah, but why did you say yes to that? Why did you say yes to that guy from that, that Bournemouth podcast? I mean, you needn't have done that. <laughs> I said, well, I do say yes to everything related to West Ham. So. <laughs> well, I'm pleased that you said yes to it. So, uh... <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. It's been really, really enjoyable. And all the very, very best in your career with LBC, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, your books coming up, and, of course, anything you put your hand to in the future as well. Well, thank you very much. And um, uh, looking at how, looking at this screen and seeing how your channel's designed, I'm thinking maybe I should do something like this for West Ham, but that would be another commitment, which my partner would sort of kill me for doing. <laughs> Oh, come on, Ian, do it, do it, do it. I'll be your first guest. Well, I think that there are plenty of West Ham channels. I mean, I, I listen to, there's a brilliant West Ham podcast, which is not visualised at all, called mm -hmm. More Than Just a Podcast. Get it more with an E on the end? Yes. M-O-R-E. Um, and I, I appear on that uh, from time to time. Um, and I it's, it's often two and a half hours long. So I, I usually listen to that on, on the train most weeks. But uh, it, it's people, it's really funny that people think if you're interested in politics, why would you be so devoted to a football club? But it, it, there are similarities because it is, it, they're both tribal things, aren't they? Football is a tribal sport. And in, in a sense, politics is. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Ian. And no doubt we'll catch up with you later on in the season as well. Well, enjoy the match, but not too much. And thank you, everybody, for joining us on this show. Please remember to hit the like, the subscribe, the bell button below to be alerted to any new videos we do here on Up the Cherries in All Departments. Please do let us know your predictions down below as well. Um, we'll be really, really interested to hear them. But until the next show, Up the Cherries, and we'll see you then.
Thank you for joining us. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.